Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to the Universe Next Door, where today we are going to take a dive into biblical history and specifically focus on those segments of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, that feature prophecy. Yes, specific historical predictions that can be tested against the evidence of history. Well, it's great to be back in town. Nick, you look like you're rested and ready to go on another uh, apologetics journey here. How are you feeling? Great. I started going to bed on time. <laughs> so that helped big It does time. wonders, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. That's great. Well, thank you so much to you and your wife for helping us here in the ministry of the C.S. Lewis Society. Uh, let me just say for anyone who's joining us, uh, maybe you, you from time to time uh, check into our wonderful opportunity to learn about apologetics on this radio program, which is also a podcast. And so um, I want to just encourage you to visit our all-purposes multifaceted website. It's apologetics.org. We are blessed to have been able to capture that web domain back in the mid-90s when they were just warming up the Internet. And so apologetics.org is a homepage that gives you a fantastic survey of the great opportunities to learn. And you can actually jump right in right there. Just click on a button, and you can through short videos. Some of them are a little bit longer, you know, 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. But a lot of them are, are bite-sized. We have a several at the top of our page that are three to five minutes in length or, or even shorter than that. And so you can really dive into this world of apologetics and very, very quickly get up to speed on many topics, many facets. And so I have an idea from my partner, Nick Shauna, to actually rearrange those. And we're going to work on that starting this next week in kind of the way that Netflix has them, right? And kind oh, of yeah. a tiers. Everybody ro- loves rows. Netflix. Yeah. yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna turn Netflix in from a noun into a verb. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna we're going to NetflixApologetics.org. I think you would understand what I'm trying to say. Oh yeah. And and the idea originated with Nick. Thank you, Nick. So we're working on that. But we also want to just especially point out the fantastic five minutes, maybe five minutes and fifteen seconds crash course on apologetics from Greg Kokel. If you haven't seen that at our Apologetics.org webpage. You must not walk, you must run to your nearest uh, access point, whether it be a smartphone, you know, laptop, home computer, sitting on your desk. You must view that. Go, go to apologetics.org, and just you'll see a picture of Greg Kokel, the great uh, scholar in the area of apologetics, author of the smash hit bestseller, The Story of Reality, How the World Began, How It Ends, and Everything Important in Between. And so uh, that's going to be a feast, a five-minute feast for you to enjoy, if you haven't seen it yet. So today, Nick, I want to just really just move in on this area of prophecy. You know, a lot of people think of the book of Revelation as the pinnacle of prophecy. I'm holding in my hand a really wonderful, very, very well done, but, but scholarly, and yet it's accessible, study of prophecy in the book of Revelation 
by the late uh, professor and president of Dallas Seminary, John Walvoord. And the name of the book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. So that's because that's the name of the book of Revelation in, in its fullest context. So the revelation of Jesus Christ really is Christ himself. He's the figure who is bathed in light, whose body, whose uh, resurrection body literally glows as if it was like a, you know, a, a, a hundred, hundred thousand lumen searchlight, you know, beaming up in the heavens or something. And so the, the, the glowing figure of the resurrected Christ, the king of the universe, brings this overview of what is going to happen when he comes and leading up to that. So this all-important record of the seven years of the tribulation and then the return of Christ in chapters 19, 20, and then the, this, the, the raising of the dead, 2021, 20, 22, and the New Jerusalem. That whole coverage in this book is, is a course that I'm going to be teaching starting in August here at Trinity College. So if you happen to live within you know driving range somewhere in mid-Florida of uh, Trinity College of Florida, uh, we're based here in Tampa Bay, I would like to invite you to check it out. I mean, it's a three-hour course. We're taught, uh, teaching it on uh, Tuesday and Thursday in the middle of the day. But the Revelation of Jesus Christ and the Book of Daniel is the course that I'll be teaching here. Uh, it's an exciting opportunity. If, By the way, if you're looking into how to study both prophecy in general and the Book of Revelation specifically, there is a masterwork. It's called Revelation. Um, an exegetical commentary by Robert Thomas. So last name Thomas, first name Robert. It's a two-volume work, and he's a professor at Master's Seminary out there in California, uh, the wonderful seminary that was launched, I think it was through John MacArthur and his church, and Master College, Master Seminary is one of those beacons of truth and biblical um, teaching and, and training of, of the future generation of, of Bible uh, disciples of, of the Lord Jesus and it's pretty exciting to see what God has done through that commentary. So now, what does the book of Revelation have to do with apologetics? Well, let me just ask it in a more basic way. What does prophecy in the Bible have to do with apologetics? There is a very, very close partnership. I'll just go ahead and say this uh, as straightforwardly as I can. There's a tight holding of hands. There's a, um, you might say, there's a kind of a partnership made in heaven between apologetics and prophecy. And it goes like this. When you, and I'm going to just take a scientific uh, inroad first to get into the topic. If you want to test any statement, and especially in science, for example, if I am going to predict what will happen if chemical X and chemical Y are added together? If I say these two chemicals have never been joined together because they're just uh, man-made, you know, synthesized compounds, by my theory, I predict that the reaction will be a uh, liquid that turns blue and that sends out sparks and then settles down and then turns green. I actually saw a change, a color change in front of a large audience at Princeton University where a professor there said, if you mix this chemical and this chemical, it will turn orange and then black. And he was actually singing a song as he did that. And guess what? When he added the chemicals, it turned orange and the black. Those are the colors <laughs> of Princeton University. And this famous professor, his prediction came true. 
That means he knew what he was talking about in the realm of chemistry. And so in the same way, if I say, you know, when you mix these chemicals and it will turn one color and then another color and sparks will happen at this point, and this has never happened before, but it's my theory telling me what will happen in this special case, and then it does happen, guess what? The credibility, the respect that my theory has has just jumped up. Now, you may not say, well, then you know everything you need to know about this topic. No, I'm just defending that one theory or that one principle of science, you know, whatever understanding I've just shared, which is the basis of my prediction. Now, this was developed in the 20th century by an Austrian, very, very famous at the time, still famous now, Austrian philosopher of science. Science. This uh, science philosopher uh, had the name Sir Karl Popper, P-O-P-P-E-R, like a, a popcorn popper. But instead of uh, putting popcorn in this, in this popper, we put uh, the we can lay on on top of this guy the fame, the well-deserved recognition for coming up with the falsification test. Falsification in science, uh, there's a big debate about it, and it still has uh, importance very very much uh, today. But I'll get to the bottom line. Falsification means I predict this outcome. Uh, a or B or C in, th in three different uh, scenarios. But if you do this, A will happen. If you do this, B will happen. Or C, if this other combination of events comes together. Well, what if I do the combination of events that's supposed to lead to B, and I follow through with what the scientist says, but then I get result X or Y? Well, it, it flopped. It failed. The prediction didn't come true. So I don't have as much respect for that statement of science, a theory, if you will. And so Sir Karl Popper said, the way to test any theory in science is to ask if it's making risky predictions. Huh. Well, is there any theory that actually was at the beginning of the 20th century in kind of a shaky, like, well, I don't know what to think about this? Yes, Einstein's theory of relativity. He had a both special and general theory. And I'm just going to lump those two together because it's really two sides of one theory. But when, this, when Einstein's theory of relativity was put to the test, he said, if you make a photograph of these stars in conjunction with a solar eclipse, because of the issue of gravity, the factor of gravity, those stars will appear in such and such a position due to my theory of relativity. So guess what? Just about the end of World War uh, One, uh, those uh, that theory was tested, uh, and that prediction was tested. And a very famous uh, physicist from England went out to a group of islands in the Atlantic Ocean, was able to snap the pictures, and guess what? The stars appeared exactly where Einstein predicted they should. And so his theory shot to the top of the scientific world because of that one famous observation. His theories, risky predictions, came true just as they had said they would. And so, uh, to this day, Einsteinian relativity theory is accepted as one of the most confirmed, established, you know, well-documented uh, through predictions and other ways of all the scientific theories. Let's ask the question that Popper would ask, you know, of any scientific theory, do you make predictions? Does Darwinian theory make predictions? Not really. Because if a, if a prediction of Darwinian theory, like fossils will change gradually, that's a major prediction from Darwin, does that come true? No. 
fossils do not change. If anything, we know that they stay the same. That's called stasis. So Darwinian theory's prediction, so that they, guess what they did? They made th- Darwinian theory more complex. <laughs> you like that, Nick? <laughs> oh, we have a we have a richer theory than ever. Sometimes they they change gradually, and there's other cases where they change suddenly in spurts. Then nobody asks any questions. And no, <laughs> yeah, no questions. I'm sorry. Big words in I, there. I have to get to the next lecture. And so Darwinian theory falls flat on its face, because ever since Stephen Jay Gould of Harvard University brought out from the closet to the public viewing of this uh, like the trade secret, the hidden secret of Darwinian paleontology that these animals are not changing gradually, step by tiny step, accumulating mutations and being selected across eons of time. They are changing, if they are changing, in sudden hidden bursts, which we never seem to catch them. This is the funny part, Nick. We can never catch them in the actual act of of, of evolving. We just suddenly see a new species. (laughs) So they die, poof, you know, with a poof of smoke, and there it is, like a magic trick. And so the stasis, the, the remaining the same, the resistance to evolution is the main fact. And let me repeat the word fact. Observe data across decades and decades. Stephen G. Gould, J. Gould, near the end of his life, he says, I need to tell my fellow paleontologists to say 10 times before breakfast, stasis, that's stability or non-evolution, stasis is data. Say that 10 times before you have your first cup of coffee. <laughs> Get them on the right track. And so no, so Darwinian theory fails in many, many ways. I could go over along with many ways that uh, it, just, it just doesn't make risky predictions. Does intelligent design make risky predictions? Yes, it does. We could have a whole program on that. There, there's been published articles going into many of them that have proven dramatically true. What about the Bible? What do you mean? I thought we were talking about science. No, I want to apply the scientific credibility test to the Bible now. Does the Bible make risky predictions? And I turn to my colleague, Nick, and say, do you think the Bible makes risky predictions? I do not. You don't think the Bible makes any risky predictions? I don't think God makes risky conditions, uh, predictions. Maybe I need to rephrase this. <laughs> risky means they're daring predictions. Then, Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Then yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, radio audience, podcast audience. You can see this was not rehearsed. <laughs> so they're not risky from God's perspective. I thought it was a trick question. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't I ask, always fall for I, trick yeah, questions. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't ask trick questions. Okay. So they're not risky in the sense of our perspective of, of people of faith, but, you know, just someone who doesn't know anything, let's say a Buddhist or a Hindu or an, uh, a Muslim comes in. And, and we were talking about the Bible. They don't know anything about the Bible. They never read it. They, they don't even have much of a sense of what's in it. And so what we would say then, does the Bible make risky predictions? And then you would say, yes, in the sense they're daring. They're not like, I mean, let me just bring out this example. Well, we happen to be in the Tampa, greater Tampa area now. Uh, if I say that tomorrow morning between 5 a.m. and 9 a.m., the sun will come up. Is that a risky prediction? No, it is not risky. Very good. Okay, I'm going to give you a sitting ovation, okay? Okay, thank you. Very good. Thank you. So um, let me just say this very quickly, that we have in the realm of science, in the realm of pulperian theory, this is Popper's theory of falsification. You ask if a theory, in this case we're referring it to the Bible, if a theory makes risky predictions, 
And we, we, uh, we, we just said that's not a risky prediction to say that um, you know, the sun will arise between 5 a.m. and 9 a.m. in Florida. We know, you know it's going to probably come up somewhere around 7, 7.15. I don't know what the exact sunrise date is uh, time. And so we, we know that there are non-risky predictions, and then there are risky predictions. Let me give you a couple. Jesus said to Peter, you will deny me three times before the cock crows twice. Jesus gave the prediction that he himself would suffer and be crucified. He would be nailed to a cross, and after three days, he would come back to life. That's the ultimate risky prediction. He also predicted that the city of Jerusalem, as originally predicted in Daniel, but he gave an update on that in his Olivet Discourse the week he was crucified, you can find this in Mark 13 and Luke 21. It's in Matthew 24 and 25. And in the Olivet Discourse, he predicted a whole series of precise historical events jammed together, clustered together. Phase one is the destruction of Jerusalem. And then he says in, in Luke, Luke 21, he says, And Jerusalem will be trodden down of the Gentiles, will be under Gentile control, until the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. And then he jumps into the latter part of the prophecy, events preceding his return. That is a risky prediction of mammoth proportions. Let's go back to the Old Testament. As early as Genesis, God was revealing to Abraham, of all people, what was going to happen to the seed, to the lineage. Remember in uh, Genesis 15, he basically said, he shocked Abraham. He had no son, no heir, and he said, you will have an heir. And Abraham was told, as he took him out under the starry sky, he was told that you will have more descendants than the stars that you can see. And he, naked eye can see about 5,600 stars, I'm told. And so he's saying, basically, you'll have millions, many tens of millions of descendants, you know, is the implication. You'll be as numerous as the stars of the sky, and he even says as the sands of the seashore. I'm told that that numbers into the multiple billions. That is a picture of a, of a prophecy that is like shockingly, even outrageously risky because it's saying a specific set of historical events will unfold from one individual. Not only that, in that same chapter, he says, as the, uh, the sacrifice is consecrated, God walks himself with a smoldering lamp down between two animals that have been cut in two, or the, the animals have been, you know, parted, right hand, left hand part, and then he uh, God alone walks down with that smoldering um, torch, as it, were, as it were. And it's the pre-incarnate Christ, in all likelihood, who is walking down and holding the torch. God himself is cutting the covenant. And at that very moment, he says, you will be enslaved for 400 years. And after the fourth generation of 100 years, you will come out of Egypt. So the prediction was made right there, like 200 and roughly 200 years before they went down into Egypt. That was 1850, under Jacob, that they entered Egypt. Abraham had already passed away. So that 400-year prediction was dramatically fulfilled when God raised up Moses in what year? 1450. Huh. You mean they were there from 1850 to 1450 in Egypt? Yes. Where was that prediction made? Genesis chapter 15. A risky, tremendously risky prediction. And yet it came true. I mean, I could walk through the Old Testament, and I think I will do that. I'll just do devote a, a separate program to bringing in the work of Rich Aiken. Rich Aiken used to be the uh, chief operating officer 
here in Tampa, Florida of the C.S. Lewis Society. And Rich wrote an entire book on this topic uh, showing the risky predictions of the Bible. Uh, many, many of them in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. Uh, some of the predictions are really kind of weird and wonderful. The risky prediction that Jesus made, and it's found right there in uh, Mark chapter 11, as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem plays itself out. One of the most uh, powerful uh, predictions and fulfillments from Zechariah 9.9 9, said, you know, behold, your king comes mounted on a foal on the colt of a donkey. And so that was made, that prediction was made 400 years before Christ, and it was fulfilled there, of course, the triumphal entry. But what donkey did they use? Well, they didn't buy one. They didn't go to the local, you know, donkey dealer and say, you know, Here, here's my credit card. <laughs> Jesus said to his disciples, go to a certain specific spot and you'll find a donkey. And as you, and that's what the, the, the Lord needs. And just, and if someone, if someone asks you, what are you doing with this donkey? Tell them it is for the Lord and they'll let it go. And they didn't just hand out donkeys back then. No, these were very important pieces of commodity, you know, a very important part of someone's livelihood. And so what happens, it's very interesting to see the whole thing played out, but what happens is Jesus, as he's gives, giving this prediction, the disciples are memorizing his instructions of what will happen. And then they go to the exact spot and they find the donkey tied up. Oh my goodness, here it is, just like he predicted. They untie it, and some people standing there said, what are you doing? And they give the exact answer Jesus said, and they said, that's good. <coughs> and so they bring it back. Try that today. Try, exactly. try taking someone's car and said, God told me he needs it. Well, obviously, God had either revealed, who knows, through a dream, a vision, through um, someone else you know, came up and said, uh, by the way, um, you know, this is what's going to happen. And so God prepared the details of this scene as it unfolds. I mean, we could go into all kinds uh, of other predictions. I mean, some of them were actually, you know, supplied by the, the apostles themselves. For example, the apostle uh, Paul, uh, you know, is is basically predicting in, in Acts chapter 20, as he meets with Ephesian elders, I'm sorry, you won't see me again. Okay, well, that's a, that's kind of interesting. How does he know that? through the gift of prophecy. I think the gift of apostleship was like a comprehensive, all-purpose gift that had like every other gift yeah. rolled into it. <laughs> it's like the complete package, you know. Must have been nice. Yeah, the, the luxury package, like <laughs> yeah. when you buy a car. <laughs> this this gives you everything. Platinum. Yeah, platinum level. <laughs> and so, but 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 we see in that same chapter, um, there there is a, um, a, a prediction that Paul will be bound. He will, and, and we see... Um, you know, a local prophet there uh, who actually makes the, the prophecy and actually acts it out there uh, that Paul will be bound when he goes to Jerusalem. And, you know, this actually happens. Now, some people say, well, it didn't happen exactly the way because the Jews will hand you over. And it was actually the Gentiles, the Romans that took, took him. But it was the Jews that basically instigated the whole riot that led to him being imprisoned, bound in Jerusalem as he went back there for the special purpose of uh, celebrating the Passover and doing ministry in that location. So we see over and over and over and over. I mean, the Bible just doesn't have scattered prophecies. It's like a jam-packed freight train of prophecies bursting at the seam. 
And I'm going to be going in here. Uh, I'm going to do a uh, special science say, segment next week because we've got so much to c catch up with. The whole uproar that has come out about Michael Behe's book, Darwin Devolves. We need to get back into that for just one session. But after that, we'll come back to this theme and we'll settle in on the Old Testament prophecy, specifically Isaiah and Micah. Uh, those are two of my all-time favorite. They're buddies in the 7th century, about uh, 8th century, 7th century, about 700 B.C., and their prophecies are fabulous. But the bottom line of all prophecy is to learn this, that God loves us, and in apologetics we affirm that God, Jesus Christ himself, is Lord. He laid his life down for you and me, paying for our sins. He rose in front of multiple eyewitnesses, and he's alive today and can offer eternal life. And it's exciting to see this eternal life play out, even in the realm of science and apologetics. We'll see you back here next week on The Universe Next Door.